uh, Sarah Bessie one time said, the church didn't have room for my grief. That still just makes me cry. And I'm tearing up now as I'm saying that, that you take all this money and all this effort and all these systems of religion, and yet we don't have time for people's grief. Uh, what are we doing then? That form of religious spirituality, like we, we have to keep the trains moving, as you said, and you have to stop the train for grief. That's really hard to do if when the trains, when your whole existence, your whole framework, your whole beliefs, your everything rotates around. Um, you know, keeping the trains running and moving. And well, hey, everybody, welcome to the Liminal Living Podcast. This is uh, Dr. Tom, the host, curator of conversations, whatever you want to label me as, is me. And uh, yeah, I, I had a really interesting conversation this past weekend um, with a newfound friend, Carl Forehand. Um, and a couple of things about this episode. First, uh, I was coming off of a uh, really long and exhausting week, so my energy levels are pretty low at the point. I think you can tell in my voice um, that I was a little bit tired, um, but it also fit kind of the tone because Carl has recently, uh, well, he's been recovering from a stroke uh, and he is kind of a slower soul in like a very peaceful way. So I came out here, I, I just got done editing that conversation. I kind of came out into my backyard and I got some crickets and gentle wind and it just seems like a good location to kind of process everything. Uh, but Carl is a, a great soul. He uh, is a former fundamentalist Baptist preacher for 20 years and then after the election cycles of 2015 um, just couldn't be associated with uh, the kind of faith that um, he was experiencing in that sect of uh, very dogmatic, fundamentalist, um, nationalistic, uh, and kind of bigoted. So he left He's been wandering in the deserts of non-labeled spirituality, and we just have a conversation about his journey, uh, and I really enjoyed it. I learned some things, and I hope you do as well. So enjoy this episode, uh, episode 20, number two zero. We made it to number 20. I'm really proud of that. Thanks for sticking with me for 20 episodes. So here's Carl. Well, hey everyone, welcome to the Liminal Living Podcast, and uh, today I am here with uh, someone I just met. We've been connected on Facebook for quite some time. We got connected through the Messy Spirituality Podcast and Facebook group. Uh, we have former pastor and author Carl Forehand today. You've written uh, seven books. you got 20 years of pastoral experience under your belt and you have a really, really interesting story that we'd like to uh, just kind of wander down. So, Carl, welcome to the podcast today. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. It's yeah. a pleasure to be here. Well, we almost didn't have this happen because uh, when we're recording this, we had seven tornadoes whip through Michigan and there's power mm. outages and it, it was a really uh, rough weekend and 
where I'm, I'm in my office right now recording, but we didn't have internet yesterday. So I was texting you like, I don't know if it's going to happen <laughs> because we don't, I don't got internet and, uh, you know, we can't make zoom happen without that. So yeah, for uh, sure. We're going to make today happen. And I'm just so happy, uh, you're here. And as you know, we kind of talk about stories, practices, and perspectives of those in liminal spaces like dark nights and, uh, deconstructions mm-hmm. and suffering and, uh, all that kind of stuff. And I think you've had a little bit of all of those things. <laughs> and I'm yeah. really excited where our conversation is going to go today. Yeah, it's going to be fun. Well, um, can you kind of give us a little bit of a snapshot of like uh, who you are and what you're currently up to and what you're doing? Yeah, so I was, I was raised in Oklahoma and I didn't realize it at the time, but during my junior high years, uh, late middle, late elementary, middle school, whatever you want to call all that, before I went into high school, I, I realized later that I was, you know, attending a very fundamentalist um, private school, church, all that stuff. And as I kind of traced backwards through that, I realized how toxic it was. One of the examples is Jack Hiles was one of their favorite, you know, substitute preachers or evangelists or whatever that they brought in. And I'm not familiar with that name. Uh, so, it's a, yeah, just a very legalistic, uh, loud, um, very, very fundamentalist, very, very toxic Um person and that, that you know that's what I experienced in junior high but I you know I really didn't care that much about it at the time or I didn't know how it affected me <clears throat> and in high school of course I just went along went to church with my mom um, and then in, in college I didn't care much about religion or God or anything like that but as I moved to Dallas a bigger city and was entering my career and got married fairly quickly about eight, about 23 and thought about raising a family. I thought, well, I'm, I probably should be in church if I'm going to raise a family. And I kind of went back to my roots and just said, well, the Baptist thing is the only thing I know. And so we started attending. I started teaching seventh grade Sunday school. Um, and then it just progressed from there. When we moved to Omaha later, um, went to a Bible college to finish up my bachelor's degree. Um, felt like I was called to the ministry. And so for most of that, the first church was not bivocational, but the two after that were bivocational. I kind of built a side career um, and went from there. You know, I, I just didn't know anything else. I was thinking about that the other day, that... Um, now that I've had time to think through uh, and really study what I'm what I was involved in, it's like how could I ever have been involved in that? How could that ever jive with my consciousness? Mm-hmm. Um, but it did because it was what I knew and it's what I thought was right, and I thought God was on my side. And so I was very. A pastor told me once, Carl, you're kind of zealous, or you're kind of a zealot. <laughs> I don't think he meant it in a good way. Mm. Um, and But then <clears throat> around the time when Trump got into office and I 
began to kind of look around at what I was involved in, um, just started to reevaluate everything, kind of had a crash, midlife crisis or whatever you want to call it. Um, and that's when things began to change. That was about 20, 20 years after you started yeah. in the pastoral? Yeah, around, around 20 years. You know, I was before I was a pastor, I was involved in youth ministry and things like that, the things they'll let you do as a deacon. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> but then about, you know, about 17, 18 years of real solid ministry, we were kind of church planners. We would take a little country church or a small church in the city and revitalize it, you know, bring life into it, relate to the people and things like that. We were pretty good at it. But at the same time, we realized later we're accumulating trauma <clears throat> from all of that. And one day, Laura and I were walking around town here, and we just I just looked at her and said, I can't do it anymore. I had a, had a conversation once in front of my church where I was basically <clears throat> evalu- evaluating the how I felt about the queer community in front of them, you know, it was just like wrestling with this. And uh, it was the issue of whether or not you should bake the cake for the gay couple. Mm-hmm. And I, at the end of the sermon, I just said, I can't do it. I, I mean, I would do it. I would bake the cake. And one guy's head just about spun off around. <laughs> he turned red and, um, they still didn't, you know, it didn't want me to leave, but I couldn't, keep keep wrestling with those things in the pulpit and and still lead a congregation at the same time. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of where it started. So you that was around that 2015, 2016 yeah. realm. And yeah, it was around that time. It's real hard to pinpoint now because it was a whirlwind. Yeah, it seemed like everything like descended at that time and just mm-hmm. set everything in chaos. And yeah. When you say, you know, that you were embracing you know, a form of fundamentalism, how would you, how would you like, um, describe that fundamentalism? What, what made you, you know, looking back, say that was definitely, you know, a form of toxic fundamentalism, like what views or beliefs or even like stances? Yeah. When I, when I looked at my congregation and, and they were dear people and their, their congregation was dead when I got there and it didn't, kind of came back to life and it grew and but when I looked at them and said you know I preached mostly about grace and love and uh, I wasn't a hellfire and brimstone preacher or anything like that so kind of just simple people but they had been indoctrinated to hate gay people they had you know they had been indoctrinated that whatever their form of politics was it was right it seemed like they just uh you know, they even though I talked about love and grace, they still couldn't understand that that they could treat gay people differently. That their nationalism, you know, and kind of a white nationalism uh, was just part of the routine. Um, there, um, all of those those type of things, and and really, I you know when I started out, I probably was even afraid to talk about that or to, or to say it out loud or write it in a book. My first book was called Apparent Faith, 
but but what I the 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 lens for me was um, how can God be worse than me? Because I I took my role as a father, and I, by then my kids were almost grown, and I looked back on me as a father and compared that to to my view of God and my, my congregation's view of God. Uh, how can God have a worse temper than me? How can God um, hate certain people? You know, we never use those words, but in, in essence, that's what we were doing. Um, why would God exclude some of his children? Why would he, um, you know, that's, and I compared those issues under the framework or under the lens of me as a father, you know, and I, I wasn't saying that I was better than God, but I, I was saying that our belief system and our view of the, the Bible and so on makes me out to be better than God. And I, uh, if there's a God, then that, that can be right. And so that was the way I began to wrestle with, the way I began to look at my, my uh, type of faith that I had. And it just really quickly became, kind of began, began to become unraveled. The, f the first thing to go was, was my view of hell, you know, of eternal conscious torment. Um, and you, could ask, you can ask anybody in any faith and ask them, would you torture your children um, for disobeying you? Even for five minutes, would you torture your children? And they say, no. And then I say, well, how could God? Well, he's more holy. He's more loving. Well, that doesn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. <laughs> You know, uh, that he loves them more, so he would torture them worse for, you know, and that kind of puzzled me when I was a kid, but I kind of brushed it off because I, when the pastor convinced me that I was going to go to hell, well, I walked the aisle and got saved at age seven. But looking back, I was like, what did, what had I done wrong at age seven mm -hmm. <laughs> to be tortured consciously forever? Mm -hmm. And so anyway, those those are some of the beliefs that started to go. And as one would kind of go, then then I would look at something else. And it um, kind of like a sweater unraveling or however people describe that. Mm -hmm. uh, it just began to change. Yeah. And like when you pull, start pulling on the string, then you start noticing almost like a beaded necklace, like, oh, this one is coming out now. Mm -hmm. And then you pull on a little bit more and you're like, oh, this one was attached to the previous one. And now that one's got to go. And it's it's almost like this process of deconstructing. You're, you're not just deconstructing like this belief and that belief. It, it's a web of like toxic guilt, shame, and mm -hmm. uh, just really unhealthy views of religion and people and God. But as you said, you know, we don't know any better. Um, because this is just what's been handed to us. Mm -hmm. We grow up in it, or we, or you know, we meet somebody, and then they, we learn that they're religious, and then it's like, oh, well, then I have to be a certain way in front of this person. And mm -hmm. you know, I'm sure you got that as a pastor, where someone found out you're a pastor, and all of a sudden they changed. And that moment is like, oh crap, I was just like speeding in front of this cop, and I have to slow down. Yeah, um, and it's it's. Yeah. 
It's like you, you pull those beliefs out and they're all connected. It's like a big web and the next one and the next one and the next one had, they got to go. Yeah. I don't believe I was ever sad once, once those, once I, you know, become conscious of how I felt about that belief. Um, I wasn't sad. It wasn't like I was losing an old friend. It was, it was like, man, I'm glad I discovered that. Mm. But at the same time, you know, all of us, when we deconstruct or explore or find new things that are better, we have sort of a PTSD, you know, there's a, an identity crisis mm -hmm. uh, that goes on like, well, wait, who am I now? Am I an atheist or am I an agnostic or what am I, you know, or I'm just a progress or am I a progressive Christian or not a, you know, um, so you have that identity crisis. Who am I? What do I do? W you know, where do I go? Mm -hmm. And and what do I really believe? You know, you have to, to. I like the term evolving instead of reconstructing. Mm -hmm. I like that because I I have friends that you know deconstruct a little and then put it back together so that they can keep making you know whatever the. The rationale is for that, but I that didn't work for me. I need to keep, once I know that maybe some of my beliefs from the past are wrong, then all of them are suspect. And I think that's okay. And so far, you know, after however many years it's been, probably eight years or so now, um, I'm, I'm still deconstructing, I'm still evolving. Mm. Uh, and it still feels better and better the further I go. You know, I, I didn't fall, slide down the slippery slope. I didn't, you know, be careful is the main thing you hear. Mm -hmm. And I haven't fallen into any danger. Um, my wife and I are happier than we've ever been. We've we've found we've participated in some healing, some shadow work, and inner child work, and therapy. And, and things that we didn't get to do when we were in Christianity like I used to be mm -hmm. because there was so much bypassing. Anytime it brought up that, you know, I'm struggling, it make people uncomfortable and they give you platitudes and we got to, wait a minute, the service is starting. We got to get back to mm -hmm. doing church and doing things that we, we do, keep the trains run, running. But we found so much healing um, we've also found, you know, we take elements of other practices. Um, we've, we've learned about, you know, we, we did a little work with things like tarot and, and things like that, but you know, in the long run, it's probably not for us, but I did learn some stuff by investigating it, uh, that's helped me in my walk. Um, last night, believe it or not, I went to a... <laughs> Um, paranormal investigation. No way. But, That's so cool. So, yeah. So I wrote a, um, my novel, my first novel was called the hotel. And it's about a, a hotel in town that, uh, during the 1920s, 1930s, you know, was probably involved in bootlegging and there's rumors of tunnels on the streets and, um, all of that. It's also rumored that it's haunted. So, um, all that worked into my book when I wrote it. Of course, my book was a work of fiction, but it was based on that hotel. 
So last night I got to go with the paranormal team and spend half the night inside this hotel. It's, it's kind of fallen down now and um, very, very interesting. That's, you know, that's not my new religion. You know, Mm -hmm. I, you know, I don't have to know everything about the spirit world and um, all of that stuff and start investing money in a new hobby. It's, it's just that I want to, I want to explore and investigate that and see what good I can pull out of it. You know, how's it going to help me be a better human being? Um, how is it going to enrich my life? How can it aid in my healing still? You know, almost everything I've experienced on this side of my old life has enriched me and, and blessed me. You say blessed me, right? Um and and we're we're happy about that. You know? mm-hmm. My wife and I, my wife is so glad that I'm not a pastor anymore because mm-hmm. it was it was so traumatizing to her. But but we do you know there I think you know I don't your story is different than mine. But uh, for me, if I can keep this, you know open and on that road of discovery, then I'm I'm just going to keep finding truth, and I've I've got to follow that. You know. I don't want to be bound to one thing. We did like a class with the shaman and she, she's very committed to that. She's traveled to Peru and all that stuff and done all the medicine and stuff and so on. But we took the first class and um, got some stuff out of it and really found some validation for the healing work we've done and so on. But uh, I noticed about halfway through that it sounded a lot like um, God is in control. <laughs> you know, there's a predetermined thing, and and we need you to take another class so you can be fully indoctrinated with this. And we like kind of start backing up, you know, and said that's not why we're here. Mm-hmm. Um, we're just going to continue to investigate, and that that sounds to to evangelical Christianity that would sound like you're not committed to anything. And, and that's partially true, but it's also, I am committed. I'm committed to uh, continuing to grow, continuing to learn uh, and, and thriving, healing, helping others, those type of things. I'm very committed to those things, mm-hmm. uh, but not any, spe- not any specific I don't know, religion is not the right, right word, but not any specific tribe or practice or way of doing things. We just want to keep growing, keep learning. You you said a phrase that was interesting a little while back. You, um, you were talking about, you know, the deconstruction process. You lose your identity. You're not sure who you are. And... Mm-hmm. Um, you said this phrase that really caught my attention. You said, when I became conscious of how I felt about a certain belief, mm-hmm. and I've kind of been exploring this idea that, um, like, who we are and what we know to be true in, in the deepest parts of ourselves, which transcend the brain, um, like, that's, that seems to be established, and when we go through the deconstruction journey, like we're going beyond like just mental labels of things and we're getting to the essence of 
who we are. And that really makes people nervous because they really like their labels on the outside of a thing because then it's like, this is approved, this is safe, this is okay because it's got the Christian label on it or whatever. Um, and I'm, I notice like when I start deconstructing, it's like I'm becoming more of who I am and becoming comfortable in my own skin and I'm not trying to just display or um, like, you know, here's the, here's the vocabulary that I'm supposed to use and here's the beliefs that I'm supposed to believe. And, you know, it's like I'm doing an impersonation of who I think I ought to be. And I spent so much of my life doing that. And then when I went through like suffering, um, like that, I started to realize like these ideas and labels, they don't actually work for like real life and Mm -hmm. not suffering, you know, that those belief systems, they like insulate you from how insufficient they are to take on life. Mm -hmm. And then when you hit like a suffering, like a mode of suffering, a season of suffering or deconstruction, like you start to realize how these don't really work in the Mm -hmm. life that I actually have. They're just, Mm There's just like ways that I've been trying to pre- like impersonate who I think I should be. Mm-hmm. But that deconstruction yeah. journey feels like you become more of who you really are and what you really believe. And that all was triggered by that phrase that you said, you know, I became conscious of how I felt about certain beliefs. Yeah. Well, you, yeah. what, how, could you talk a little bit more around like that, that discovery process and the realization? Yeah. I'll do my best to, so I hate to just keep talking about my books, but my books, the, the nonfiction books that I write are about my journey, you know, so it's a different stages. And so the second book I wrote was called the tea shop. And we went to Taiwan to visit my son. He lives there. And we ended up in a tea shop with a, the guy who's probably Buddhist, but it didn't come up. You know, we were working through a translator uh, we ended up spending, we just bought a teapot, a couple of teapots, and then um, we ended up spending an hour and a half with this guy. And the, it took me a long time to kind of process what happened in that tea shop because normally I would have been the American. I'm the American Christian. I'm the American Christian that has to convert the lost. And of course, he's lost because he's not American. He's not Christian. Mm-hmm. Um, but that would have been my mode for some reason that night I'd, I'd had a scooter crash while I was there that ruined my whole vacation or I thought it did. <laughs> and that redirected us to that tea shop where we had time now to sit. And so we just sat and we were present and that's, that's the first word. The second word is, um, I noticed this guy was one of the most authentic guys I had ever met. He's speaking a different language, but he just delighted in our presence. He was, he was present and he was authentic. And so those, those words stayed in my head. When I wrote the third book about my healing and my dark night and all those kind of things, uh, those two words came up again. And my third book, the subtitle is, a journey towards presence and authenticity. And so when I could be present 
truly present. You were probably, you know, raised in the same era I was when they used to take roll, you know, and they would say, they'd say your name and you have to either say here mm-hmm. or present. And so, oh, and they'd say, and so they thought it meant the same thing. But we've found out since then that here, that here and present is not the same thing. When my teacher, when when she said, are you present? She meant, are you here? Mm-hmm. When my wife says, are you here? She may, really means, are you present? Mm-hmm. And when I started learning to be present, I realized, you know, I, I don't, I don't know who I am. I don't know what I believe. But when I started being present, then I began to, to discover, some people say, what I've always been. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the real me. It's it's what I really want. It's what I really believe. It's what, how I really value things in my world and, and things like that. So <clears throat> I say it this way. Um, and I sign every blog this way. And uh, I don't know if I will into the infinite future, but right now I do. I say, uh, be where you are, which is presence, and be who you are, which is authenticity. Mm. And and I find that I am the things I admire in people more than anything is when they're authentic, mm. when they're real, when they're the, when they're who they are. Like like you said, when they're not when they're not uh, imitating what they think they should be, which is all wrapped up in a in a system and the, and the purpose of the system and, and those kind of things. So, yeah, uh, it's, when we do interviews with people, we've done about 290 podcast episodes. And as we interview people, common words come up and I can't tell you, uh, it's almost every other episode that someone says how important being authentic is. Mm-hmm. And I, it's one of the things that I admire. I could call it integrity, I guess. Yeah. But to have integrity, you have to know who you are. Yeah. And you have to stay present uh, and live out that truth. Um, and I I love authentic people. Mm-hmm. I, I give up on, on inauthentic people really quickly. <laughs> I have a hard time with that too. I'm, yeah. I'm trying. One of my difficulties is to not aim my former fundamentalist attitudes towards fundamentalism in his mm-hmm. present day. And that that is something I have a really hard time with. I'm totally yeah. fine with all types of people. I can be around all types of people. And then I get around a fundamentalist and then I want to be like neo-fundamentalist towards them. And, and it usually doesn't do much for me or them. And uh, I don't really... Yeah. I don't really have an answer around that one yet, but that's my current struggle with my own judgmentalism is, you know, I, I hear, um, you know, I see a bumper sticker, (laughs) you know, like it's religious or political in nature and I immediately clench up inside and I'm like, you're one of those people. And I want to re-aim my fundamentalist past self at those who are, I mean, I used to be them and I'm still angry at myself for being that way. And it's Mm -hmm. almost like I want to take out 
you know, punish myself in the past by punishing these people of who I think were like me in the past because I yeah. haven't really fully healed and forgiven myself for being caught up in fundamentalism. Yeah. Uh, and it's, I, it's a dualistic thing and it's not, yeah. it's not enough to just be not them, you know, right. It might be a theist or an anti-theist, you know, an atheist. Well, we somehow, and I think most of it is we got to get away from, um, doctrinal battles mm-hmm. you know, belief battles things like that um what about pursuing you know who you really are what it means to be fully human uh and to be exactly who you are what what would it be like to live that life out yeah um it's definitely it's not easy no it, you have to be like you know you may you tied that together before conscious and intentional and and those are things i think that, that just grow over time and evolve i like what um howard thurman says um you know you got to listen for the sound of the genuine within yourself hmm. and when you it's like we know that when we get around somebody who's just really genuine you know you and that individual in the tea shop like you heard the sound of the genuine you're like this is real regardless of how it's labeled this is real this is and i want to get in touch with you know what's real and you're talking about being here and being present are two very different things and um Mm -hmm. you know that that's all we ever really have is the here and the now Mm -hmm. because we do a practice at our church um when we start, uh, there's something I learned from monasticism is called the prayer of recollection. And what that does is we recollect our distracted, scattered existence across time and space. And, Mm. you know, I'll remind people, you might be worried about something that happened in Colorado last week, you know, so you're part of you is last week in Colorado. You know, you might be worried about something that's going to happen next week, you know, mm-hmm. and it, it's going to happen at work. And yeah. part of you is thrown into the future. And all of these past regrets and future anxieties disperse our presence across space and time. And then we become very um, dim in the present moment because we've scattered our attentions and our intentions across space and time. So we light a candle and we say, bring, let's recollect our scattered, distracted existence back into this present moment, because Mm -hmm. this is what is real. This is what will prepare us Mm -hmm. for, you know, that conversation that we got to have at work that might be really difficult. That's, you know, this moment here can prepare us for that, but we Mm -hmm. have to be here because that's all we ever have is here. Right. Because when, when then arrives, it will be here. You know, and, and we keep living two hours, two weeks into the future. We're never in this moment. We're never really enjoying what is presenting itself to us here. You know, whether the the sun is shining in a particular way or a bird is singing, you know, we miss all that stuff because we're worried or we're regretting things that don't exist yet or anymore. And it's, it's a really interesting practice to just recollect your scattered existence into the present moment and like be present in this moment 
And I think mm-hmm. when we do that and learn how to do it well, we can become more authentic because we're, we're, we're in this moment and it doesn't matter how we label this moment. It's, it just is. Yeah. And the, uh, that presence, um, to me, uh, you know, I, I really don't have too many practices anymore except uh, an old practice called centering prayer mm. uh, from Catholicism. I can't even, I can't get that word out for some <laughs> reason. But, the, you know, and, and centering prayer is just where you have a word that, that helps you recenter. Yeah. Um, but you don't ask for anything, you don't say anything. Uh, you're just you're just present. And Laura and I went to a couple of quietness retreats and learned in 20 minute increments to, you know, just be present for an hour or so. And the other thing that comes along with being present is listening. And we we this I participated in spiritual some spiritual direction training from some Benedictine sisters, and they taught me a form of bio-spiritual focusing where they would, as you would talk, they would just say, well, what, you know, what do you feel and where do you feel it? Mm. And then you would tell them and they'd say, hmm. Mm. And they'd, they'd repeat it back to you. They'd say, well, so a part of you feels whatever, you know, and then they would just be quiet and they would listen. They call it a vak listening um, the, because they were just fully present. They didn't have to lecture me or give me a platitude or do anything. But, but once we found out through focusing that once we become present with a part of us that's feeling something, that's tr- it, that it's usually trying to heal an old wound. And it's, it's trying to tell us about something and just going inside getting in touch with with herself uh, helped us heal helped us quote unquote minister that child that's inside of us that part of us that was traumatized sometime in the past but also just just when we're doing a podcast or listening to someone's sacred story, um, great power, I think, in truly hearing people, truly listening. Um, and that, that takes presence. And um, it wasn't, you know, my former religious experiences didn't foster that. There wasn't time for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sarah Bessie one time said, the church didn't have room for my grief. Mm-hmm. And that still just makes me cry. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm tearing up now as I'm saying that. Um, that you take all this money and all this effort and all these systems of religion, and yet we don't have time for people's grief. Uh, what are we doing then? Mm-hmm. And that's because that form of religious spirituality, like, we, we have to keep the trains moving, as you said. I like that phrase. You got to keep the trains running. And grief, you have to stop. You know, you have to, you have to stop the train for grief. And uh, that's, 
that's really hard to do when the trains, when your whole existence, your whole framework, your whole beliefs, your everything rotates around, um, you know, keeping the trains running and moving and this train's got to be better than the last train and faster and cooler. Mm-hmm. And, you yeah. know, being a pastor, you know, it, it can be a challenge because you have like this fundamentalist structure that you're handed here's the questions you're allowed to ask and here's the answers that you're allowed to have. And then you have culture that is extremely consumeristic and they don't want to grieve. Uh, They don't want to stop and recognize suffering and difficulty until it hits. And so you get those things colliding in this evangelical culture of, you know, Western Christianity where, um, you're, you're, you can't stop and grieve because you have this, the train's got to keep moving and you got to keep, you know, the, the whole wagon running. You can't stop. It's and also grieve. uncomfortable. Oh, you very. It's, yeah. it's just really uncomfortable when somebody says, listen, this thing I'm dealing with, or, you know, you and I have disabilities in our families and explain that to someone, they get uncomfortable because they can't solve your problem. They can't, yeah. you know, and so just want to move, you know, we want to move on, but yeah. you can't. When I had my stroke about 19 months ago, 18 months ago, Laura and I looked at each other and we said, we're going to do this. We're going to get through this. But we also had to say, I'm sad. Mm. I'm really sad. And my wife um, didn't give me a religious platitude. She didn't. You know, yeah, it wasn't part of God's plan or anything. It just she just said, "I know," and we we were there uh, together, mm-hmm. and I, that made all the difference in the world as to how we moved forward. Yeah, you know, just to say sometimes that this this just sucks and it's uh, I'm sad. You know, yeah. I'm angry. I'm angry about this, and that's okay. Um, and then put a period on the end of it instead of adding something superficial to it. When somebody just says, you know, like, like your wife says, I know, like, it's almost like you can exhale in that moment. You know, I, about nine years ago, next month, my dad passed away, uh, at 59 of cancer. I had six days to figure it out because he told me he had cancer on a Saturday and Mm -hmm. he was gone by Friday. Um, He just Mm -hmm. went down that fast and I had six days to figure it out. And I I remember in that week span calling up a friend of mine and I just told him like, my dad has cancer and it looks really bad and I I don't, it doesn't look really good. And uh, most Christians that I knew at that season of life would have insert platitude here. Mm-hmm. But he said, I don't think God's going to save him. I don't think God's going to heal him. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it sounds harsh. It sounds rough. But in the moment, I just exhaled. Like, mm-hmm. I think so too. Like, a part of yeah. me just knew this was time. I don't. I don't, not as in like, this is God's plan, kind of a platitude, kind of a thing. I just, somewhere I knew he was going to die. And 
when my friend just let me acknowledge that, like, it was just like, I didn't have to hold Mm -hmm. my suffering and his uncomfortability with my suffering. Right. It's like, oh, I don't have to carry your thing too. I can just be me here in this moment. That's a good analogy. I think that's a good assessment. Yeah. When, when, uh, you know, when you said about your stroke, you know, I'm sad and I'm angry. Like, did you go in and like say I'm sad about, and then, you know, losing this and not being able to do this, or was it just a statement that it is, I'm just sad in this moment, or were you sad over specific things? One of the things I, one of the things I did um, was I didn't do too much, too much research about strokes and how soon you should recover and things like that. I heard some of that, but I, I didn't overstress, you know, overstudy it like I do with most things. Um, I just, again, it's kind of staying, it's kind of staying present, just saying, you know, it's a simple phrase I said to Laura and that, that seemed to be enough, especially when she heard me, you know, and she, she just nodded her head and said, I know, um, like in your situation that, that was enough. And so then when I'm recovering and when I'm going through the rehab and, um, physical therapy and all the therapies. Um, I would just look at the therapist and say, say, you know, it, it wasn't about what I think is best or what I've studied or whatever. And it was just, all right, let's, this is what we're going to do today. So tell me what to do and let's do it and I'll do my best. And um, I'll, I'll try to, you know, as much as I can enjoy the struggle, but to admit those things and with and be seen with eyes of grace with no judgment and just compassion uh by the way i love the word compassion these days you know even more than mercy i so i think mercy is connected to retribution (laughs) and i'm not a fan of retribution anymore but Mm -hmm. um but compassion is powerful. Mercy kind of gets us off the hook. Compassion is what heals us. And so when when we're just simply honest, simply present, um, I think that allows people to be compassionate for us. Mm-hmm. You know, to have compassion for us, and that's that's ultimately what heals us. Um, when those inner parts of ourselves can can experience that compassion. Mm-hmm. You know, I think being able to be compassionate for ourselves in the moment we're in says a lot. You know, mm-hmm. I, when when you have self-awareness, uh, you're very aware of yourself, your intentions, your motives, and all this stuff. Um, when you have self-awareness that exceeds self-compassion, it can be a really difficult existence because you see so much of yourself, but you're not compassionate towards it, and then you're down on yourself all the time. Mm-hmm. And being able to encounter compassion in another person, it's almost like you can, it gives you permission to be compassionate to that part of yourself too. Mm-hmm. Like that you have a weakness or, you know, 
as you said, you have disability. So now there's things that you can't do. And now you live in a world that's not made for you. You know, mm. you have to adjust yourself to try and be in a world of able-bodied, able-mind people when you have this disability and like, yes, we have laws that there has to be ramps and all these other things, but people just, they're not aware of disability and how it slows people down. And we just want to run at 20 miles an hour, 40 miles an hour, 80 miles mm -hmm. an hour. And I'm like, I'm just walking at my pace here. Mm -hmm. And it can really make you feel like, what's wrong with me? Why can't I fit into this place and these people and this, this stuff? But then when somebody slows down and comes next to you and just says, you know, I hear you, I see you, I have compassion for you. And it's like, you know, there's, it's not me that has something wrong. It's the world, the world is not providing a hospitable place for me. And that's not my fault. Yeah. People, you know, Thich Nhat Hanh, the, the, I think is a Vietnamese Buddhist, um, talked about mindful walking. Yeah. Yeah, and just, and sometimes I like to look at in my life kind of like that as a, hopefully it's just a mindful walking, but I was such a doer, you know, the, the main title of my third book is being, just being, mm -hmm. and to me, most of my life, that was a cop out. If I was said, I'm just being, I'm just here, um, but my stroke has helped helped me some with that, just to be where I am, be who I am, um, but walk through life mindfully. And um, most times that means slowing down, mm -hmm. you know, and, and to, to experience those things, even the uncomfortable things, you know, with... I, I hate to use, sometimes I hate to use words like gratitude and, you know, because we can over, overuse that, you know, and we're trying to be, trying to put a positive spin on everything. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And sometimes it sucks, but it, sometimes it's good and sometimes it's deep and sometimes we can't explain it and sometimes we can't, but, but just to be mindful and taking deliberate steps um, to just be where I am and be who I am. And yeah. Just like we talked about before. Yeah. That, and giving yourself permission to be who you are, where you are, that mm -hmm. is really difficult in a society that says time is money and the faster you can go and the more you can get stuff done, then the more productive you are and the more money you make. And, and uh, like, that's like, like if we're hot water, that's the tea bag that's been dumped into us. And there's no getting away from that influence upon us to, to rush around and be, you know, product, crazy, productive, crazy, busy, crazy. And then you get suffering and you get grieving and deconstruction and all those things like screech you to a halt. It is mm -hmm. every, it all has to, you have to stop. You have to slow down. You know, you have your stroke and now there are things that you just cannot do right now. And mm -hmm. uh, it's to give yourself compassion in this moment and saying, this is who I am. And this is the season of life I'm in. 
and I'm going to allow myself to be here and be present. And that's, that takes a lot of courage to do that yeah. in a society that yeah. does not value that. I hate to use a lot of colloquialisms or whatever, but you know, we work, work and work and work and work to go on vacation and go somewhere and sit still. <laughs> and really that, that, that relaxing and setting still being where we are um, could happen right now. You know, I have trees outside my backyard. It's when I take the time to look at my back door, it's beautiful. The trees behind me and the animals and the, all the insects and so on. But during my stroke recovery, I had lots of time to just enjoy that and to be there. Um, and then I've taken vacations, you know, where, where it was hard work to get there. And when I got there, I was stressed out and uh, the plans didn't go like I expected. And, and you kind of have, you kind of start to ask yourself, what am I doing? You know, Mm -hmm. what am I, what am I, what is all this doing? Where am I going and what's it accomplishing? Um, maybe something that I could have right now, mm. just by maybe slowing down a little bit and being more conscious, uh, and aware. Yeah. I literally like your practices of, you know, be present and be authentic that I think that really, sums up what spirituality is trying to do and then humans make it do something else that's more profitable <laughs> or builds a bigger system or gets more involvement but when you boil it down to the essence of what we're supposed to be doing as human beings i think that pretty much sums it up uh, wouldn't you like be present and be authentic yeah and some you know a lot of people deconstruct into progressive christianity i'm not against that just saying, be aware that that sometimes, not always, sometimes just dragging the toxicity from one system to another. Yeah. And yeah. we're repeating some of the same mistakes. Mm -hmm. And I just, you know, for me, it, it requires staying, you know, it, to me, it looks like, like one side of me is just open and I'm moving forward. And in our new book, we call it leaning forward. Like when you're a kid and you go, what's that? And you go look at it, you know, mm -hmm. it's kind of just that openness, um, taking steps and being just learning to be more conscious and aware. Am I recreating the same shit I left all over again? You know, mm -hmm. um, and you have to be intentional about that, you yeah, know. Yeah, absolutely. Everything is going to pull you in the other direction. I know it will. That um, yeah, that intentionality and attention. I think mm -hmm. that is that is a big deal. Well, um, I just want to thank you for being on our podcast today and, and sharing your story and sharing your life and some practices and perspectives and. Uh, you know, normally I like to close with, you know, give us some practices that you do, but we've been kind of just talking about those through the whole time. And uh, uh, I just think you're a very courageous and authentic individual, and I just thank you for, for being here. You're up a couple of times. <laughs> uh, that's all right. Yeah, that, that shows that you're in the moment. You're, 
you know you're you're allowing yourself the vulnerability to feel your emotions and that's a that's something that i need to work on that's really hard for me and you're doing it and thanks for showing me that yeah indeed my pleasure that time went fast it did we already talked an hour (laughs) 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 well i don't know how to end podcast so i just hit end over here well thank you so much for listening to our episode here of the liminal living podcast and uh, sorry it's a late episode, but um, I've got, I had some things going on. And, uh, but we got it out to you this week anyways. And I'm glad that you were patient and you stuck with us for this journey. Uh, next week we'll have some more conversations. I've got some Ask Me Anything uh, planned for the upcoming. So, cause I got, I still got a couple pages of questions y'all have submitted that I've been pondering around so i'm working on that this week and i'll have you something uh coming out very very soon so uh thank you for listening and we'll catch you next week peace out